Lord. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you would find your way to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3. And when you have found your place there, also flip over to 1 John chapter number 2. 1 John chapter 2. Romans 3 and 1 John chapter 2. Last week we looked at, or we started a, I guess, series of messages in regards to uh, biblical words. And uh, last week we uh, looked at justification and the significance of uh, that word and how we are justified uh, before God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, this morning we're going to look at uh, propitiation and what that word uh, means. And so I would uh, pose the question, what is propitiation? This is not something that is oftentimes uh, uh, preached on. Uh, a lot of folks don't even know what that word uh, is. And so uh, this morning we want to explore the meaning of this word. And in ancient Greek, uh, the word was uh, oftentimes used for uh, pagan uh, ceremonies. It was used for the offering of animals as a blood sacrifice. And it was the it was used as an idea of appeasing, if you will, an angry God. And they thought that if they were to offer this sacrifice, that it would make God happy again. And that, you know, whether it be the storms or sickness, whatever it was that they was facing at that time, uh, that if this sacrifice was presentable enough, if it was honorable enough if it was great enough that maybe God would stop doing in their minds what was happening uh, to them. And so this became a form of their idol uh, worshiped and and so they thought that giving this blood or food that the anger of God would be turned away from them. As a matter of fact, uh, even to this day in Haiti, uh, this is a uh, practice that is still being done uh, through what is called voodoo. So how does the Bible define perpetuation? If you want a biblical, perhaps a non-theological um, example of what this perpetuation would mean, it could go back to the book of Genesis and you'll find the story, if you'll remember, of Jacob and Esau and how that Jacob called or he had cheated Esau out of his uh, inheritance and and then he ran for his life and in Genesis 32 it tells the story of how uh, after 20 some odd years that Jacob wants to have a reconciliation with his uh, brother and so he sent a message to Esau saying I Jacob your brother am coming to meet you at such and such a time and place and uh, will you come and meet with me so he sends out his messengers, now this is paraphrasing obviously, uh, with the word and they uh, came back with good news and bad news. The good news was that Esau is coming. The bad news was that he was bringing some 400 soldiers with him. And so Jacob was being very wise and uh, cunning man, decides that he will offer a gift in hoping 
that this will pacify his brother's wrath. And so Genesis 32 tells us that he made the following gift. He gave some 200 female goats, 20 male goats, uh, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 15 uh, female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 donkeys. And he sent all of those animals up on a, a, a hill there. And he instructed the one uh, in the lead that he said, When you see my brother Esau meet you and ask, To whom does this belong and what are we doing with all these animals that are in front of me? Then you are to say that they belong to your servant Jacob and they are a gift to uh, Esau. It is coming behind us and that is to say that Jacob thought that all of these gifts, that's a lot of animals, right? That's a lot to offer, uh, hoping to to bring some satisfaction, maybe to relieve some anger that you have towards me. I'd give you all of these animals that this will pacify him in Jacob's mind that I am sending these gifts. And perhaps when I see him, he will receive me. It's interesting that in the word, in the Greek word, the translators of the Old Testament when they came to Genesis 32, verse 14, that that Greek word literally means that I will perpetuate him with these gifts that I am bringing. So to perpetuate, whether it is in a secular ideology or theological terms, it means to turn away this anger of wrath by the offering of a gift. Alongside that, you may could write down Proverbs 16, 14. It says, a king's wrath is a messenger of death, but a wise man will appease it. So this morning, as we look at perpetuation, what does the scripture say uh, in regards to this? And to understand this in this full uh, biblical sense, especially how it applies in New Testament times to the days of Jesus Christ, we must have that understanding from a background perspective as, or from the Old Testament background perspective as well. And so we need to go back to read the books of like Leviticus and Leviticus 16. We read the story of, of activities on the Day of Atonement where if you'll remember the Old Testament Day of Atonement came up once a year. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would uh, take off his regular uh, regalia, if you will, and he would put on a different uh, uniform. And on that day of atonement, he would take a goat up and he would offer it as a sacrifice. And this would be the blood of the goat. And very carefully, he would go inside the tabernacle into a, the holy place behind the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And he would offer that blood sacrifice there. The Ark of the Covenant being there, it was placed there with a little bit of uh, manna, Aaron's rod, and... Uh, a copy of the Ten Commandments. So on top of that Ark of the Covenant, uh, there was a lid. It was pure uh, gold, and it was the sculpture of the wings, the angel's wings there, the cherubim, uh, from one side of the Ark to uh, the other. Nonetheless, the high priest would take the blood of the goat into that most holy place, and there he would sprinkle it on that mercy seat on the lid of the covenant, and God would take down or look down from heaven and atonement and forgiveness. The covering of sin was made. 
Now, you translate or you transcend or fast forward over into the New Testament, and this is where Jesus comes into uh, the scene, how he becomes the perpetuation for us. And so I want us to read, uh, first off, let's look at 1 John chapter number 2 and verse number 2. It says, and he is the perpetuation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then over in Romans chapter number 3 and verse 25, the Bible says, Whom God hath sent forth to be a perpetuation through faith in his blood. That precious blood, that powerful blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sin that are passed through the forbearance of God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word this morning, God. We're thankful that your son died to be sin for us and God how that because of that precious blood that flowed from Calvary's cross Lord that because of that we can have the forgiveness of sin Lord we're so thankful that you saw fit to save sinners such as we Lord I pray that as we look at your word this morning God that you would hide me behind the cross of Calvary or that these dear folk not see me but that they would see you. Speak to our hearts, perhaps one that is listening. God, we pray that you would convict their heart if they are lost, that they be saved, forced eternally to lame. Lord, likewise, for that one that maybe is backslidden this morning, that is not in a place where they need to be with you, God, we pray you convict their heart as well, that they repent and return to you. Lord, for whatever you do here, we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the honor and the glory, for it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. He was the perpetuation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that a wonderful verse of Scripture? This passage, uh, Scripture tells the truth very much like this, that Jesus Christ in his death on the cross on, on one hand is very much like that high priest that we talked about in Leviticus who offered the blood on the mercy seat. But on the other hand, Jesus Christ is also the very sacrifice himself. Jesus is our high priest, and he being this sacrifice, we both have the high priest that, that does the uh, act on our behalf, but also the very sacrifice himself that was offered up to God. Isn't that great? Jesus being our high priest, how can that be? It's oftentimes hard to understand, very much like... Uh, uh, trying to explain the Trinity uh, to some, how that you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, yet three individuals. Uh, you have God the Father who has specific duties. You have God the Son who has specific duties. You have God the Holy Spirit that has specific duties. Collectively, they're still God. There's one God, but it's in three persons. 
Jesus Christ was our high priest offering the blood sacrifice on our behalf, but yet he was the sacrifice. He himself was the sacrifice. If you remember over into uh, the uh, the Old Testament and Old Testament times, and and uh, Lord willing, if we're still, if I'm still here during Easter, we'll look at this more in depth. But uh, nonetheless, in Old Testament times, uh, during the, uh, the 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 Passover time, they would offer a sacrifice, and in that sacrifice, it had to be what a perfect lamb had to be perfect. It couldn't have any blemish, no broken bones, nothing like that, right? Perfect. Well, then you fast forward over into the New Testament. Jesus Christ was what? The Lamb of God. In Roman times, capital punishment being crucifixion, when the death was inevitable and it was it seemed to be happening, the soldiers, as custom would be, would go to that cross and and actually break the leg of the person hanging there to ensure that they had indeed died. That didn't happen with Christ, though, did it? You remember what happened with Christ being the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for sin? And instead of breaking his leg, they jabbed a spear in his side. Remember, that's what the Scripture tells us. And so this Christ being our sacrifice, the very blood of Jesus shed for all mankind. Jesus hanging there on the cross. And you remember that moment of great agony where in his human form he cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, something that we don't fully understand happened. It was in that very moment that the wrath of God was poured out. You remember? It's when darkness came. It's when the the, uh, veil in the, the temple was rent in two. It was as if the sewer pit in hell was emptied out on Jesus Christ. He became sin for us. The one who absolutely knew no sin at all became sin. For all of our sin, my sin, your sin, the sins of the entire world was poured out on him. In that very moment. And that is when God turned his face from his only begotten son. In that moment, Jesus took the wrath of God for us. Let me give you three truths to summarize the effects of perpetuation. Three truths. Because Jesus Christ died, God's justice is now uh, satisfied. Everything that needed to happen, that needed to take place, took place with Christ. Because Jesus Christ died, God's wrath, thankfully, has now been turned away. 
The price of sin has been paid for. Aren't we thankful? Can you imagine for a moment, and I'm not going to try to veer off of this too much, but just for a moment, can you imagine if we were not under grace? That if we had to literally obey per verbatim the laws and commands of the Old Testament. And I, and I mean this in the sense that uh, sacrifices had to be made, perfect sacrifices had to be made, certain days certain things had to be done, certain clothes could or could not be worn, marriages would be different, which that may not be so bad in today's time, right? Amen, Romy. Things would be so different. Can you, can you imagine how that that price, all of that was at Calvary done away with? That Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus is the one that did away with that and we're no longer under the law in those respects, but we are under grace. Grace. His grace is sufficient for all. The price for sin had been paid. Because Jesus Christ died, God's mercy is now freely available to anyone who wants it. Anyone who wants it. And I want to close with these four implications for your and my life today on this perpetuation. And I'll try to make these brief. The doctrine of propitiation means that God's essential nature has now been fully revealed. That God, uh, that so many people in today's society seems to cower in fear and we have a a lot to be fearful of, right? A lot of things is happening uh, in our world and even in our streets and our neighborhoods. And so many people live in this fear, and they live that fear that God is angry. Now, am I saying that God is not angry or that God is not upset? I'm not saying that. But I'm not saying that God is angry in the sense that he is trying to cause harm or trying to hurt us. And we hear people say to pray for the opposite of what you want because God always gives you the opposite of what you pray for, right? That is a perversion of the character of God. The doctrine of perpetuation teaches us that we ought to be uh, a a judgment seat to now uh, through the blood of Christ that has been turned uh, that judgment seat into a seat of mercy this is the throne of grace and that's why hebrews says uh, that he might be a merciful high priest we see that god's essential character that he is merciful and he is gracious toward us on the basis that jesus christ's death on the cross is what was needed We can now see also, secondly, that clearly the absolute necessity of the blood of Christ. We cannot be saved aside from it. We cannot go through this life without it. Just as the blood must be sprinkled in the Old Testament, in the literal and physical blood of Christ had to be shed 
on the cross. So many people today can't talk about the blood of Christ. They don't want to talk about the blood of Christ. They, uh, they would um, uh, try to uh, make some offensive uh, regards to it or that's not what uh, we need today. We don't want to hear that today. We don't want to hear about uh, a sinless life that was lived and how he helped those that maybe were outcast in society and lived a perfect life, the very Son of God who who loved and who, who told others the way to live life, who died on a cross for their sin. That's where it gets them. Sinner, right? Uh, Paul said that there is none righteous, no, not one, regardless of how good we think we are. And I, I think everyone here this morning is good, right? But you know what? Even as good as we are, we're still sinners. We're still sinners. And I'm so thankful that because of that, God knew what we needed. It wasn't a preacher. <laughs> it wasn't a preacher trying to, to, to beat this into to you that, that you are a sinner and that you need God. No, it was the blood. You don't need this preacher. You do need Jesus. And I say that as people as a whole. We need Jesus. We don't need religion. We don't need all of these other fancy things that society has given us. We need Jesus. Since Christ bore the full weight of God's wrath, that we can now enjoy the fullness of the blessings that God has. And that is His mercy. His mercy. I shudder to think that some people, and I, I say this because I've heard it with my own two ears, how they say that God hates me. That, that I've done so many bad things in life that God could never forgive me. I remember one time, this has been years ago, I went to a, uh, I was going to say I went to jail, but that would be, I went to visit a jail, all right. Uh, went to visit an inmate in jail and uh, he was talking about some life choices that he had made and and as we were communicating he had told me he said I don't see how God could love someone like me and I looked at him and I simply said you are the very one that God loves the very one because in the eyes of God we are all what sinners and there is no degree of sin there is no stair-stepping this one is worse than this one in the eyes of God it's all the same we're all sinners but there is mercy available now I'm not saying we won't have to pay for the sins we do commit right we have a justice system in this country and and we try to we try to implement that justice system we still have to pay for what we do but I'm thankful that God is able to forgive and finally for those who reject Christ there is nowhere else to turn 
know, we can try a lot of things in life. I, I, I like to go back to the, to the woman in, I think it's in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 9, I believe it is. It's in Mark and it's in Luke as well. The woman who had an issue with the blood. And she had literally spent everything she had trying to find a cure. Went to all the greatest doctors and the physicians and the fanciest of medical clinics of their day. And had literally, her and her son had sat down and was preparing their last meal. For she was about to die. But she knew that Jesus was coming to town. And when she had looked everywhere else, there was no help to be found. But where did she find it? In Christ. Dear friend, we can look all we want to at all these other places and we can go to all the programs our hearts desire. There's nothing wrong with programs. Don't misunderstand me this morning. But until you find Christ, you're still making that endless revolving circle. Those who reject Christ, there is nowhere else to turn. Romans 3 and 25 says, Whom God has made a perpetuation through faith in His blood. William Cowper said, Then and there I realized what Christ's blood had accomplished. And I realized the effects of this atonement for me. I realized that God was willing to justify me then and there. I trusted Jesus Christ. And a great burden was lifted from my soul. You may not recognize that name, William Cowper. But several years later, he wrote a hymn. And it is a hymn that is in our hymnal today. And one of the stanzas says this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. What a beautiful message. The fountain of blood. And when we're plunged beneath it, all of our sins forgiven. That blood. I pose this question to you this morning and I'll, I'll hush. Have you ever been plunged beneath the flood? I recall at my baptism, I've always been a pretty good sized boy. And when I accepted Christ as my Savior, I was a pretty good-sized boy at then as well. And we filled the baptistry with water. And, of course, you know, I was 13, 13 years old. And I liked to swim. I had, we had a pool at home and all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, we filled that baptistry up. And the youth pastor and the pastor both got a hold of me. And we went into that baptistry and... I floated, right? Literally. They had to force me under the water because I just wasn't going. And I can't help but think, you know, sometimes 
there's some people that we want to really just force under the flood. Jesus said, if you would come to me, then I will give you rest. I'll take all of your burdens away, give you peace. And in our society today, I think that is something we all need. Peace. To take the burden away. And we can't do it anywhere else. You know, we can come to this altar and we can lay it down. And I encourage you to do that. But so often when we arise from this altar, we take all those burdens and gather them back up and take them right back with us. And I encourage you as we stand, if you're able, we're going to extend a hymn of invitation. This is your opportunity to do business with God. Maybe you need to pray for yourself. Maybe someone you love. Maybe a time of rededication. Maybe a time of salvation. Has He knocked on your heart's door this morning? Is He saying, come to me? Come to me. Maybe you have some family that is lost and maybe you'd like to take them and literally just plunge them beneath the flow of Christ. Would you pray for them today as we sing?